All right, so SOAR 10 is where we'll begin. Most of all of our study today will be solely from Quran. Um, we're picking up from where we left off last Sunday, and so we're still dealing with why we faced the Kaaba uh, during the prayer. So we looked at the different steps. First step is making our attention. Second step is ablution. And now we're still dealing with why we face the Kaaba before we start prayer. So last week, we stopped that looking at, um, uh, we saw actually two things. We saw one, that throughout the Old Testament, it is recorded that there are three prayers, the morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, the evening prayer. And then we also identified the fact that each of these three prayers had a focal point of facing towards Jerusalem or the Temple Mount at that time. And if you remember, we stopped at Daniel, when Daniel, which we'll probably read again today, just to prove a point, that Daniel would go up and open his window towards the Temple Mount, and he would bow his face to the ground three times a day. So we want to pick up there uh, today where we left off last week. Uh, any questions, comments about anything about last week before we move into Lesson 4? today mm -mm. Well, once going twice all right mm -hmm. so sword 10 sword 10 um where did my sword go here it is all right so sword 10 and we're going to start at verse 73 so sword 10 verse 73 says but they denied him so he saved him and those with him in the ship. So we know this is talking about Noah. And made them viceroys in the earth while they drowned those who denied our revelation. So then the nature of the consequences for those who have been, see then the nature of the consequences for those who had been warned. Then after him, Noah, we sent unto their folk. We sent messengers unto their folk, and they brought them clear proof, but they were not ready to believe in that which they before denied. Thus print we on the hearts of the transgressors. Then after them we sent Moses and Aaron unto Pharaoh and his chiefs with our revelations, but they were arrogant and were a guilty folk. And when the truth from our presence came unto them, they said, Lo, this is mere magic. Moses said, Speak ye so the truth when it had come unto you. Is this magic? Now magicians thrive not. They said, Hast thou come unto us to pervert us from that faith which we found our fathers and that you too may own the place of greatness in the land, we will not believe in you too. So as you've seen, God starts, we started off where God was ending the story about Noah and the flood, and then he brings up that he sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. And it says that when our revelations came to them, they wouldn't believe. But the question was, asked to Moses, is this magic? So the revelation that a lot of making reference to are the miracles that you know about from the Bible. Moses doing all the miracles with the staff, 
staff turning into a serpent and and all the other things that we know about from the Bible that Moses did. So these are the revelations that God makes reference to, and this is why he brings up that Pharaoh and his people basically accused Moses and Aaron of practicing magic. And if you remember the story, Pharaoh was so irate about it that basically they set up this showdown where the magicians of Pharaoh mimicked everything that Moses was able to do. The only difference is every time they mimicked something, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh, but Moses did it in through the power of God in a more extreme way where it was undeniable that whatever God was backing Moses up was greater than what whatever was backing up these magicians. So this is why Pharaoh brings up magic. I'll come back to Pharaoh and magic in a minute. So, uh, verse 79, Pharaoh said, bring every cunning wizard to me. When the wizards came, Moses said unto them, cast your cast. And, that, and when they had cast, Moses said, that which you have brought is magic. Lo, Allah will make it vain. Lo, Allah upholdeth not the work of mischief makers. So we're getting now to the part where Moses told the magicians, do what you do. And when they did it, Moses would then duplicate. And then, But what he did was he called them out on their magic. Now, the magic being referenced to here is the type of magic that is kind of being, well, I ain't going to say kind of, it's, it's the magic that's being used today. And I, that's why I said I'll come back to Pharaoh and his people to explain this on a different level, but I'll say this for now. Um, the magic being used today, I like to call it the, the magic of the people of Pharaoh because they had a system set up where it was just totally crazy, and it basically brainwashed people to be willing slaves. So Pharaoh set up a system where his people became willing slaves, and he sat at the top, him and his elite sat at the top, while the citizens were willingly uh, uh, put they willingly put themselves into the slavery and, and understand I'm not talking about the children of Israel right now. Children of Israel were forced into slavery, but Pharaoh's own people were brainwashed into a servitude system where uh, uh, in order to keep them from realizing what was going on, he orchestrated a magical system where the high priest and the priesthood that were under him kept the entire nation under mind control through the means of magic, so that nobody would question, nobody would wake up, nobody would see reality for what it was. They continued to give these people illusions. And this is the magic that Moses called them out on when he said what you just did was. The kind of magic that's going on today? Right. That's why I said the same magic that Pharaoh and his people used is the same magic that's being used today to cause distractions, to cause uh, uh, depression, to cause all kinds of things to keep our minds stuck on that, the false reality, to, to avoid us seeing reality for what it is. So being that I'm saying this, and that's why I said I'm going to come back to it, but I want you to think about something. Pharaoh had children. Those children had children. Those children had children. So the people of Pharaoh, that's why I said I'll come back to it, still exists today. This will tie into Esau and Edom, and you'll see how we'll connect it all. 
But the people of Pharaoh and the magic of Pharaoh still yet exists today. His system of magic, his secret mystery school to keep everybody in slavery to him, uh, except for his elite chosen, this is still the same system we sit in today. So if we're still using Pharaoh's magic and we're still creating the illusions to keep people in mental bondage, then the thought that we really need to think about, who are the people of Pharaoh today? Okay, so verse 82 says, and Allah will vindicate the truth by his words, however much the guilty be averse. But none trusted Moses, save some psychons of his people, and they were in fear of Pharaoh and their chiefs, that he would persecute them. Lo, Pharaoh was verily a tyrant in the land, and lo, he verily was of the wanton, or the transgressors. 84. Moses said, O oh my people, if you have believed in Allah, then put your trust in him, if you have indeed surrendered to him. They said, in Allah we put trust, our Lord, make us not a lure for the wrongdoing folk. And of thy mercy, save us from the folk that disbelieve. Now, 87 is what I want you to pay attention to. So in verse 87, it states, And we inspired Moses and his brothers, saying, Appoint houses for your people in Egypt, and make your houses or oratories, and establish worship, and give good news to the believers. Uh, so what's going on here, before we break verse 87 down, is Pharaoh is a tyrant. And if you read through the whole story, Pharaoh has made a law against the children of Israel at this time because he notices that they don't fear him as a god. They don't fear that he holds life and death in his hand because they have this hope in this person named Allah. So uh, when Moses goes to challenge Pharaoh, as you'll see later, Pharaoh brings up a question to Moses of who is this God that you so trust in? Because as far as I'm concerned, in the land of Egypt, there is no God but me. And Moses basically defies him and basically says, then bring it. If you're God, then do this, do that. And so he makes Pharaoh look stupid before his people. So one of the things that Pharaoh does as a rebuttal against Moses and the children of Israel is he makes a law that says they can't pray to their God. And if he finds any of them praying to their God, it's illegal. It's against the law. You will be jailed or killed. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> it's, 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 it's where we're headed to right now in our current society. We, we've seen the small stages of it, of the people of Pharaoh putting this in place. We started with separation of church and state where, you know, they brought up the fact that we're not allowed to bring Bibles to school and we're not allowed to talk about God in school. But if we sit back and pay attention to this, in most school libraries you have a Bible called the, 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 the Satanic Bible. So how is it okay for the Satanic Bible to be in school? But you can't have the Bible in school. Okay? So then when you have young Muslims that want to go and start a prayer group, well, the school board meets and says that's against the law because that's, that's against the regulation of church and state. 
when a group of young Christians want to get together and just have a prayer session, there's always some type of pushback because it's offensive to some students and blase, blase, blase. But when it comes to satanic beliefs and satanic behavior, there's no pushback. They're allowed to do whatever they want to do, have satanic clubs, have satanic prayers. and But the Christians, the Muslims, and all of them, we are restricted from worshiping our God in the public school system. And I always tell people to think about this. Make that make sense, that it's okay to worship Satan in public school with no questions asked. But when it comes to the worship of the one true God, there's always some pushback or some law why we can't do that. So if we compare where we are right now and where we're about to go, Compare it to what Moses and the children of Israel had to go through under the tyranny of Pharaoh. Do you get my point of what I'm saying? That the people of Pharaoh have never went away. They just have changed their names. Okay? Mm-hmm. So so what Moses was told to do by Allah was to tell the people to go in their home and go into a spot in the house and make that spot of oratory. Sister Jehan, the word oratory, what does that mean to you? Um, or, or, oratory deals with oral, which would mean mouth. So where you go to pray or where do you go to speak? Okay, okay. So Beth, what would be your viewpoint of the word oratories? Uh, it makes me think of something like auditorium, but I don't know. Okay. So if we look up the meaning or the definition of oratory, an oratory is a noun. Number one meaning is a small chapel, especially for private worship. So I'll just stick with definition one. So what Moses told the people to do was find a spot in your home. Make that your personal sanctuary. Pray in there, so therefore your prayer is private. Pharaoh nor the military will see you, and you've not broken their law because you didn't do it out in the open. You did it in the privacy of your own home, okay? So we had to pray in secret. Couldn't pray, you couldn't pray in public. Sound familiar, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't stand in the public market and hold a prayer service because that was against the law. It was disturbing the peace and all kinds of other laws that Pharaoh had made up. And these laws were not made necessarily against the children of Israel. These laws were made as a counterattack against the God of Israel because Pharaoh felt a way that these people believed in this God that he didn't believe in because in his mind he was God. And because he was God, there was to be no other gods in the land that were going to be worshipped, and nobody was to be greater than him. You know, if you could imagine Pharaoh with mindset of a Donald Trump type person, you know, I'm the chosen one. You know, whatever I say, that's what it's going to be. You know, if I say no prayer to this God, then gosh darn it, no prayer to this God. So Pharaoh was a very – what you say, Sister J.R.? Uh, you broke up. Say it one more time. Say it one more time. You broke up. He only wants to bring out people. The only one that could do 
Right on. Whatever you just said, because this is what we just heard. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we say. Amen to whatever you said. What'd you say, Bill? I said I concur because that's what I heard too. Right. <laughs> so I, I I think I I can make out about what you was trying to say about Trump and how his behavior was acting, but it kind of gives you an idea of how Pharaoh was acting. So Pharaoh was a very deep dictator-type person as a political figure. Not only did he rule the land of Egypt, but he literally ruled the land of Egypt. Okay, so the other thing I want to show you about verse 87, if you go to the first slide there, um, after the, the, the slide about the Kaaba, you see I, I provided the – you got it up? Mm-hmm. Oh, amen. Okay. So um, we're looking at 1087, and as you can see at the top is the Arabic, and at the at the, the bottom below the Arabic is the transliteration and then the translation in Pictal. So I'll read the translation in Pictal again. And we inspired Moses and his brothers saying, appoint houses for your people in Egypt and make your houses oratories and establish worship and give good news to the believers. Now, Again, when reading the Quran, because the Quran is a translation from Arabic to English, sometimes because we translate words to make the English reader have a better or closer understanding of what the Arabic was saying, we translate words. But when we translate words, the next word that we translated from, that we translated to, we now lose some meaning from the original, and we don't get the umph that we need or the understanding we need because we translated something to make it make sense, but by doing that, we weaken the text because you totally missed what actually was just said. So at the surface, it looks like what Moses told the people in English was to go in your house, find a private spot, and make that your private prayer area so you don't get in trouble. That's what it looks like from the surface, right? So, But if you look up in the transliteration, over towards the end of the first sentence, you'll see a word, Kiblatan. Q-I-B-L-A-T-A-N. Everybody, everybody see that, the Kiblatan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the Kiblatan word is what we translated to oratory. So when you look up the English word oratory, all oratory tells us is it's a private place of prayer or worship. But now if we go with the Arabic word, kiblatan, or if I take the ton off, you're left with just kibla. So let's go to the next slide. So kibla. Sister Beth, can you read that for us, please, in the next slide where it says kibla? Kibla, also spelled Kibla or Kibla, the direction of the sacred shrine of the Kaaba in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, toward which Muslims turn five times each day when performing the Salat or daily ritual prayer. Soon after Muhammad's migration, Hijra or Hajira to Medina in 622, he indicated Jerusalem as the Kibla. Probably influenced by Jewish tradition, he later changed the Qibla to Mecca. 
Okay, so we now know that the word Kibla or Kibla means direction of prayer. So the word oratory was translated from the word Kibla. So if we put it back in context, what Moses actually said was, go in your house, find a spot that's going to be your prayer area, and then face the direction of prayer from there. So instead of doing it out in the open where you can get in trouble, go in the house, face the east that way, and still do your prayers. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is at this point in the story, the children of Israel are in Egypt as slaves to the Egyptians. Moses is struggling with the political powers of the time to liberate his people from the tyranny of these, these Egyptians. So there is no Temple Mount yet. We've, we've not got to that part of the story. Because remember, the Temple Mount doesn't come into play until David. When he begins to establish the kingdom of Israel and unite them as a nation and then sets the headquarters in Jerusalem. So they've not even got to Jerusalem yet. So when Moses told them to go in their houses, find a spot that's going to be their prayer area, and then face the direction of prayer and perform the prayer, what was he talking about? Because he's not talking about facing Jerusalem because Jerusalem at this point is not even established yet under Israel. They 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 are just now coming. They, well, let me let me rephrase that. They haven't even done the exodus yet to travel through the the the, the wilderness, headed to the promised land. They haven't had one battle yet. They haven't had to conquer any of the land yet that we call the promised land. So, what prayer and what direction of prayer is Moses talking about? So, rewind to the last class when I showed you. In the Bible, where Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may go out in the wilderness and hold a feast to me. We looked up the word feast, and it means to go in a circle. So in one place in the world that they would have went to to walk around in a circle, and that would have been the Kaaba, which was from the religion of Abraham, of which Moses was a part of. So we know from the Bible, we know from the Quran, that when they left Egypt, they went across the Red Sea, and as you'll see here in a minute, when you cross the Red Sea, you end up over in the Medina area. And then right down the street from Medina is this place called Mecca, which is the wilderness. And, yeah, I won't go through that again, but you, you, you get my point here. So Moses apparently was very much privy to the Kaaba, even at the time where the children of Israel were in Egypt. Now, as a prophet, keep in mind his people have been in Egypt for some generations. They have forgotten the one true God. They have forgotten the ways of Abraham because they've learned the Egyptian ways. And as the deliverer of his people, not only has he taken them out of tyranny, but he's taken them back to their rightful religion. He's taken them back to the right way to pray. He's, he's teaching his people the way that the prophets before him taught the people. So this is why he tells them, go in your homes, find somewhere to pray, and face the right direction. Go to the uh, next slide. So the next slide is going to be the commentary on the verse that we just read. So in this commentary, it says uh, they were commanded to pray inside their homes. 
Allah tells us why he saved the children of Israel from Pharaoh. Now, it says Pharaoh there, but Pharaoh in English is just Pharaoh and his people. He tells us how he saved them. Allah commanded Musa, which is Moses, and his brother Harun, which would be Aaron, to take houses for their people in Egypt. And make your dwellings as places for your worship. Uh, Ibn Abad said, while interpreting this ayat, the children of Israel said to Moses, we cannot offer our prayers in public in front of Pharaoh's people. So Allah permitted them to pray in their houses. They were commanded to build their houses in the direction of the direction of prayer. So the point I'm making out again is, is even in bondage, it appears from Allah's point of the story that the children of Israel, through their prophet Moses, knew the right direction of prayer, was hindered to pray because of Pharaoh's laws, but was given an out of how to do it without getting in trouble. So even in the midst of their persecution, they still kept up with the prayer and did it the way Abraham was taught to do it, and Moses was just reviving the religion. Everybody see that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a question. Questions, comments? Yes, go ahead. So at this point, am I correct? In, in, I'm trying to remember. At this point, they were not facing Mecca, right? Uh, yeah, they're facing Mecca at this point because Jerusalem is not even in the story yet. Remember, Jerusalem doesn't come about until David. So this is where the children of Israel are in bondage. David's not even born. We're still generations away okay. from David. So are you saying that Abraham or Moses, Lord help, Moses right, the Lord on the has, phone with us. That spirit will get on you. That spirit will get on you. Oh, I do it. I do it all by myself. I'll. I will take credit okay, for that because I do it by myself. Um, so Moses. Had them starting, had them doing it towards Mecca, and then eventually they went towards the, the the Western Wall. And then when Muhammad came into the picture, they were at the Western Wall, and he turned them back towards Mecca. Correct. Correct. Okay. As you're gonna see today, as you're gonna see today, why the Jews flipped the script and started facing the opposite direction, and this is why Allah sends the prophet to Jerusalem to fix the situation of which they tried to change without God's authorization, and he sent his prophet to put him in check without check. He was nicey with them. He didn't even have to say a word. He just did what God told him to do, and everybody followed suit, as you get ready to see here, and it made the Jews look bad. Gotcha. So, yes. You're, you're right in how you're seeing this, but we're going to connect these dots here that you'll see that in Moses' day, Moses taught his people the way that Abraham taught the religion as it was taught to him by Gabriel. But at some point in history, Israel flipped the script, and here's the part that you got to understand. So by the time the, the script flips is where the true children of Israel have already been dispersed. Japheth's descendants, who have mingled with the true children of Israel, but became dominant, Althus, or our ancestors, and then they take over, and because they are against Allah, 
and they are against Allah's ways, they are of the synagogue of Satan, they begin to change all the rules. And I, don't, and I shouldn't call them rules, but I'm saying that to be, you know, funny. They yeah. begin to change everything, the religion, what we're doing, what we're not doing, how we dress, how we pray, what we eat, what we don't eat. They set up their own religion. Right. So are you, so and what you're saying is that when Muhammad, uh, that, that day that everybody faced the wall and God told him to get up and turn around, he wasn't doing something new. He was returning it back to the way it was. He was he was rectifying what they tried to change without law's authority. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they hated him for it. <laughs> okay. So did that answer you? Yes. Okay. So now let's jump over to Sora chapter two. Mister J. Howard, was you about to say something? I was not. Okay. Not that <laughs> Okay, so Sword chapter two and we're gonna jump down to verse one thirty. Uh let's start at one thirty nine. Sword two, one thirty nine. And this is Jay Hot, if you could read some of this for me real quick while I pull up something else, and I'm going to stop you here and there to point out a couple things. Start at verse 139. Say unto the people of the scripture, dispute you with us concerning Allah when he is our Lord and your Lord. Ours are our work and your work and yours your work. We look to him alone. Okay, so Allah tells Muhammad, say to the people of the Scripture. Now, the people of the Scripture here, making reference to the Jews and the Christians right now. So he says, say to them, do you argue with us about Allah when he's your Allah too? You're making it like we're serving some false god. No, I'm serving the same god you serve. The only difference is I choose to actually obey what this god told me to do versus pick and choose what I want to do. And then you call that your religion. This is why Muhammad would always say, to you be your religion, and to me be my religion. We both shall return to Allah, and he'll tell the difference. But I'm not going to argue with you. You know the right way versus the wrong way. You must make a choice. Okay, so this is what Muhammad is being told to say. Are you Are you really? And, 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 and I'm going to bring it to 20, 2021 with us today. There are times that I do talk to a Christian person, and it's that feeling that I can only imagine how Muhammad felt dealing with these people. Are you really arguing with me about God? You're telling me that I worship a false God, and I just told you I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I just told you I believe that he was born of a virgin. I just told you I believe that he's soon to return but because I say Allah, none of that matters. I'm going to hell, and I worship a false god. Wow. Did you hear anything that came out of my mouth besides the word Allah? And then there's always that great question that I ask the Christian. If you feel this way, are you prepared to tell 1.5 million Arab Christians who call God Allah? They're not Muslims. They're Christians. 
and they call God Allah, are they going to hell too? I had one preacher tell me recently, if they calling God Allah, yep, all of them going to hell. Wow. <laughs> so, and that's funny about this. So it sounds to me that your argument is not about whether or not to live in sin or believing in Jesus. It's all about a word called Allah that simply just means God. And, yep, they're all going to hell. Because we don't serve no Allah. His name ain't Allah. His name is Jesus. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead and finish reasons, Jay Hunt. Or say you what? that Abraham... Yes. Or say you that Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob and the tribes were Jews or Christians. Say, do you know best, or do do Allah? And who is more unjust than he who hideth a testimony which he hath received from Allah? Allah is not a, unaware of what you do. Okay, so the reason why Allah told Muhammad to say this, and understand, we're still dealing with the previous verse where Allah said, "Say to the people of the Scripture." So he's not pointing the finger solely at the Christians, and he's not pointing the finger solely at the Jews. But he's talking to both groups. Allah is talking to both groups through his prophet, and he started off by saying, are you really going to dispute with us about God when we serve the same God that you serve? That's part one. Part two, are you really going to say that Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes were Jews? Or were they Christians? This is why Allah told Muhammad, ask the people of the book, was Abraham a Jew or was he a Christian? Because the answer, the logical answer that a real-hearted person is going to give you is it would be impossible for Abraham to have been a Jew or a Christian because neither one of the two religions even existed at the time of Abraham. So if he wasn't a Jew... And he wasn't a Christian, but throughout the Quran and the Bible, we are told that we are to follow the religion of Abraham. That can't be Judaism, nor can it be uh, Christianity. So the middle path is called submission. We follow the religion of Abraham. He was one who submitted to God. He did not put partners with God. And he obeyed God. That is a submitter. In Arabic, we call it a Muslim. So when we say Muslim, that's all we're saying about ourselves is I am one who wholeheartedly submits to the will of God. That's it. And I'm, you know, in, in, in the vision that we're trying to do is we have to, we don't have to, but I, this is what I do. We we weed away the culture from the religion. And and if you don't know the difference between the culture versus what the Quran actually says, you merge the two together and you say, oh, that's Islam where women have to go out with hijabs on and women can't drive cars and women ain't even allowed to have a driver's license. Y'all just let women have a driver's license. And I love when people say that, and they be like, y'all, don't say y'all. Don't please don't put me in that, that bracket. I don't believe that. So you can't, so you, can't, you can't take what one crazy Muslim does and put it on all of us. I just told a Christian this the other day. I said, that's like me going back to the crusades and then pinning the crusades on every Christian and saying, y'all are all bloodthirsty and violent people because of what they did in the crusades and the inquisitions and, 
and and all the other holy wars that have been done in the name of this God and that brutal murdering and, and burning at the stake. So I guess all Christians are just violent, brutal people that just hate. You, you get my point. I, I can't say that about every one of them because everyone's not guilty of such thinking and such crimes. So it's the same thing in Islam. I cannot help that there are people who strap up with bombs on and run in the building and scream Allahu Akbar and kill themselves. I cannot help that they have a false belief that by killing themselves and other people, they instantly go to heaven and they get, what is it, 10 or 20 virgins and all this. I'll be darned. I wouldn't be the guy. Like, you go, you want me to kill myself for 10 virgins? That's, that's all I get It's just 10 virgins? For killing myself, I, I want some peanut butter cups. I want them. <laughs> now, apparently it's 72. Is it 72? Okay, 70, yeah. 72. But I still want some peanut butter cups. I still want some M&M's. Mounds and mounds of chocolates. <laughs> if I go kill myself, I, 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 wanna, I at least want to leave with a bang, literally. So, but you, I'm being silly, but you get my point. I, I cannot help that a man that would call himself a Muslim would believe such a thing and then go hurt innocent people in the name of his God and blow up himself in buildings and women and children and other people, dogs and cats, whatever. But that does not speak for Islam as a whole. I cannot help that Muslim men beat their wives and think it's okay. I cannot help that Muslims misinterpret the Quran and take ayahs out of context and abuse the Quran to do weird stuff. It's the same thing the Christians do. Where we take scriptures out of context and then we make doctrines out of things that's not there. So, so but, the, but, but, the, but the question that we're asking is, or that Allah was asking, was Abraham a Jew? No. Was Abraham a Christian? No. Was his children? No. Well, they're descended. No. So where did you get it from? Read on, Sister Jayhard. Those 141. Those are people who have come away. Theirs is is that which they earn, and yours that which you earn. And you will not be asked of what they used to do. The foolish of the people will say, what has turned them from the Kibla, which they formerly observed? Say, unto Allah belongeth the east and the west. He guideth whom he will unto a straight path. Thus we have appointed you a middle nation, that you may be witnesses against mankind. And that the messenger may be a witness against you. And we appointed the Kibla, which you formerly observed, only that we might know who the messenger from him who formerly It's true, it was a hard test for those whom Allah guided. But it was not Allah's purpose that your faith should be in vain. God is full 
being merciful towards mankind. Okay, stop there. So the last couple of eyes we just read, Allah's telling us about when he ordained and appointed for the prophet to change the direction of prayer. So if you go back up to verse 142, where Allah says, I'm foolish of the people. Go ahead, say how are you going to say? I was going to say, I have a, I, I don't know whether to pose it as a question or a comment. When it says, because often throughout the um, throughout the Quran, it, it's stated that uh, where is it at? Where is it at? Where is it at? So that witnesses against when he says witnesses against that you may be witnesses against mankind, and that the messenger may be a witness against you we take the take the word witness as uh 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 I saw you do that. Right. Where 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 as it, it seems to me that it's not saying I saw you do that it it's to be to be mean meaning like example. Right. You're an example this witness, for them. Right. And this is why Allah says we I made you a middle nation. Why are we the middle mm-hmm. nation? Because before us you have the Jews and the Christians, one to our left, one to our right. And they fight each other. So Allah put us in the middle and said I made you now the word middle here it's not the English middle that you understand, meaning left, right, and then you're in the middle. It's more explained this way. If you're to my left and you're to my right and y'all fighting back and forth, there's this imbalance going on. So with the third party in the middle, I now become the balance between the left and the right. So I can grab a hold of you and grab a hold of you and bring us together, and we we, we, we on track. Yeah, and then in the middle, we hold the balance. And like you're saying, witness against or witness towards mankind is not necessarily saying, I'm snitching. You didn't do your prayer, Mm -hmm. so I'm snitching. No, this is Mm -hmm. the word middle in Arabic means an upright, straight nation. I made you the upright, straight nation that the Jews were supposed to be, but they failed. I gave the opportunity to the Christians, they failed. So now I'm giving the opportunity to you. And hence why I keep saying the Muslims are in the predicament we are in right now because we failed. We abandoned the Quran for the Sunnah. We Mm -hmm. added things to the religion that was never authorized by Allah nor his prophets. So we're doing nothing different than the two groups before us did. And just like they had to reap the consequences, so must the Islamic nation reap the consequences for disobeying Allah. And this is why such persecution is on the Muslim nation right now. It's a little bit more than just because you have to think, Muslims are confused right now. Why aren't we getting the victory? Why are they Why are they blowing every goddamn Islamic country to smithereens? Why are innocent children just being killed like this? Where is Allah at? Where is the fighters at? Where is the the deliverer at? Uh, 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 The other week, 
they showed some video footage over in Syria, and just hundreds upon hundreds of people out there yelling and crying for the Mahdi to come. Please, Allah, send him. And they were crying about being killed like this. And they were asking Allah for mercy and saying it's not supposed to be like this. It is not. If you go back and read the days that the Islamic nation was doing what Muhammad told them to do, I mean, Allah was giving them victories left and right. I mean, within a span of a few years, Muhammad was able to clear out every false religion in the Saudi Arabia Peninsula. And there was nothing left standing by the time Allah was done guiding but Islam. Now, we saw somewhat of a victory on September the 11th when it was supposed to knock Islam off the map and demonize it. But it backfired, and we started seeing a rise in Islam and converts to Islam since 9-11. So once, and this is why Allah says in the Quran, the Jews have nothing to say until they go back to that which I told Moses in the Torah. The Christians have nothing to say until they go back to that which I gave Jesus in the gospel. And then the Muslims have nothing to say until you go back to that which I revealed to this prophet, which is the Quran. So we're all fighting each other, but we've all made the same mistake. We abandoned what our prophets told us from jump. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So back there in verse 143, where it says, uh, actually, 142, the foolish people will say. Now, the foolish people... Uh, and, and the reason Allah calls them foolish, and you'll see it in another ayah here shortly, is because they already knew that the direction they were praying was not the right direction. They knew it. And they knew from the prophecy that the, the Arabian prophet that's spoken of in the Bible was coming and that he was going to rectify that which was wrong. So what happened this day wasn't a shock to them because they already knew from the books of prophecy it was going to happen. But yet they tried to hide it and manipulate the people to continue to do the total opposite of what they knew the truth said to do. Make that make sense. I know the truth, but we're going to do it the way we want to do it and then take the truth and hide it from everybody else, and only us will know about our lie. So what I lied. People still came to God. <laughs> so the so so the foolish being mentioned here are those who would have known the truth, and it says that the foolish will say what turned them from the direction of prayer that they formerly observed. So the question is, or if we look at it, it's said that all the people prayed in one direction until this one day, where this man got up and flipped his back to the direction we were used to praying in to a new direction. And as Sister Beth said, it wasn't necessarily a new direction. It was a direction that had been forgotten and abandoned. So, bringing it back to the question that I always ask, can you imagine the burden and the heaviness on Muhammad's shoulders that day? There were thousands of people in attendance at prayer. They had been praying towards the Temple Mount for hundreds of years. And here comes this snot-nosed little young boy, 40-something yeah. years old, 
<laughs> who just going who just going stand up in the middle of a prayer and then turn his back to the temple mount and then defy us this way? And then not only did he do it, but then hundreds and thousands of other people followed suit. Can you can you imagine what went down in the house of God that day? Can you imagine the eye cutting and the ill feelings in the hearts of the elite leadership of that time of the Pharisees that were in control of the political system during this? Can you can you imagine the hatred towards this man? Not only did you defy us, but then you got everybody else to follow suit with you. So they realized at this moment that it wasn't just Muhammad they were dealing with. It was hundreds of other people who had the same viewpoint. And they realized at this moment that their authority and their power and their political structure was getting ready to be shaken. And this is why they started to hate the man. Because like Jesus, they already knew he was coming to shake the current system, the status quo. He was going to shake it up. And once status quo gets shaken up, Y'all know how it goes. It's going to fall apart. So that means no more control over the people through mind control. They're going to start thinking for themselves because this man is going to teach them to think for themselves versus listen to us. They're going to stop giving their money because they're going to realize all the lies we done told them. So now not only is he going to mess up our structure, but he's going to mess up our economic system, keeping money out of our pocket because they ain't going to give it to us no more because they're going to figure out all the lies that we've been telling. So what made them change from the direction that they formerly observed? Say Allah. Unto Allah belongs the East and the West. So jump down to 143. We appointed you a middle nation that you may be witnessed against mankind and the messenger may be witnessed against you. Now, pay attention to this. And we appointed the Kibla, the direction of prayer. So notice, we. So we now know we, this is making reference to Allah and, and those who associated with him in, in this project. And we appointed the Kibla which you formerly observed. So the direction of facing the temple mount was allowed by God. He appointed it. So even though they disobeyed him, he allowed it to happen for a reason. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. they, diso they disobeyed, but instead of Allah intervening and stopping it, he used it for wisdom. And he goes on and he explains that I appointed the former Kibla or the direction of prayer, that only that we might know him who follows the messenger or him who will turn his heels. So Allah basically says, let me say it this way, the only reason I allowed them to face the Temple Mount as long as they did is because I knew the day was coming where this man was going to be here, and when I spoke to him and told him to obey me and take it back to where it was, this was going to be a test amongst you for me to determine who was true in their heart towards this man and who wasn't. So just like Jesus, make this make a little bit more sense. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, people praised him and said, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Surely this is the one. A couple of weeks later, they were all screaming, kill him. Are we right about that story? The same ones who praised him as the Messiah? 
are the very ones who turned around and said, crucify him. So within the crowd that was around Jesus, he had loyal followers who really believed in his message and really believed he was the Messiah. And then within Jesus' church or congregation, he had those who gave him lip service and said they believed in his message and they believed he was the Messiah, but they had a deep-bedded agenda about him because when things didn't go the way they wanted them to go, they either abandoned him or joined the rest of the crowd said, kill him. So it's the same thing with the prophet. There were those who believed that the prophet was the prophet, that the scripture spoke of. There were those who said they believed only because they had an agenda. And then there were those who said that they believed, but in their hearts they really didn't believe, but to go along with what the crowd was saying and not look bad. We're just going to openly say, yeah, he's the one. Praise God. He finally came, but, I, you know, behind closed doors, I really don't like him. I just don't think he's, I just don't think he's the chosen one. I don't think he's the prophet. So Allah says, so to put it into the lip service, this is why I appointed the former direction facing Jerusalem, because the day was coming where we were going to take it back to facing Mecca, and on that day, I will determine who's real and who's not. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, so Allah goes on and says, in truth, I tell you the truth, it was a hard test, save for those whom Allah guided. So the only ones who could stand up and turn their back to Jerusalem were those who really knew what, the, what that book said. So when they saw Muhammad do it, they didn't see it as he did something wrong. They saw it as this man is following the scriptures. And if this is a man that's going to give me the word and nothing but the word, I'm following him. So if he got up, I'm getting up. So understand, it wasn't that they did what he did. The people who did what they did were people who knew the scriptures. And they knew very clearly what the scripture said about the direction of prayer. But because the status quo of the day said we don't do that no more, nobody was doing it. It's kind of like where we are today. We know very clearly what the scriptures say. You know, I tell you all the time, Christians tell me this all the time. I see what you're saying. I see that the Bible says that, but that's just not the way I believe it. So we get to pick and choose how we believe what God says. So if God says it's red, I don't have to actually believe it's red. I just know that God said it was red. But if I want to believe it's black, I could do that and I ain't did nothing wrong. You know? What do you mean? So so like 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 Jesus. Jesus says very clearly, don't pray to me. Pray directly to the Father because the Father loves you just as much as he loves me. So we see this very clearly in red letters in the Bible that Jesus said, don't pray to me. Pray to the Father. But yet, Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, come kill us. Jesus, thank you for the food that I'm about to eat. Jesus, so we're doing the total opposite of what Jesus even told us not to do. So Jesus even went as far as saying, that in that day, you will not have to ask the Father anything in my name. You don't have to use my name to talk to the Father. You can go directly to the Father and be yourself. But, Father, in the name of Jesus. 
So again, we're doing the total opposite of what Jesus told us not to do. And here's what's baffling. Now, for me, when I go visit a church, I'll pray. And just to settle differences, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. So I I purposely mention Jesus so nobody gets all their patties all up in the bunch, you know. But what's funny is when it comes to healing and things like that, I'll walk up to a person and I'll pray. Sometimes I don't even pray. I just say, sir, where's the pain at? Right here. So we lay hands. Do you feel that? He's just feeling different. Okay, try to move that. All right, let's praise God. We just had a healing. Well, the religious folks get mad. And I, it happens all the time. He never said in the name of Jesus. He just touched them and said they were healed. Never said Jesus' name. He's operating under demon power. <laughs> wow, really? So I'm a demon now because I didn't say in the name of Jesus as the magic word to make it happen. So you get what I'm saying. We get these church traditions that we think Jesus said we had to do it this way, and then when you look at the Bible, he actually says the total opposite. But then when you show them, I just don't believe it that way. 144 says, We have seen the turning of your face to heaven for guidance, O Muhammad. And now, verily, we shall make you turn in prayer toward a Qibla, or direction of prayer, which is dear to you. So turn your face towards the invaluable place of worship, O you Muslims. And wheresoever you may be, turn your faces when you pray towards it. Lo, those who have received the scripture know that this revelation is the truth from their Lord. And a lot of not unaware of what they do. So, again, a lot specifies to us that the truth of the Kaaba is in the scriptures. Now, the rewritten scriptures we have today, they redacted that information, but they didn't close all the loopholes. So that's how we're still able to go back and look at Moses and say, well, where was he taking them to? Well, it's very evident when he tells Pharaoh, let me God said, let them go out in the wilderness so they can hold a feast to me. Now, we mistranslated this word feast. If we would have just said, let let the people go so they can go out in the wilderness and walk in a circle, it would have been more clear what they were doing. Or it still could have been questionable, but why would they just be in the wilderness walking in the circle? But you get my point. To a person with some knowledge, it would, it would stand out immediately. Okay, so check this out. Sister Jehai. Are you familiar with how many times we were commanded to circle the Kaaba when we walk around it? Uh, look, my mind automatically went to uh, Jericho where where they were commanded to walk around it seven times, but I don't recall anything that says how many times we're supposed to walk around the Kaaba. No, I don't. Okay. Beth, are you aware of how many times you're supposed to walk around the Kaaba? Seven. Say it again. Seven. Now, why do you say seven? I mean, I just learned about Hajj all for like an hour and a half last night, and that was what I was told. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's right, seven times. Now, let's do some comparison to something this Jihad just said. When the children of Israel were told to go and conquer Jericho, why did they march around the city seven times? 
So obviously, these people have it ingrained in their mind about circling objects for seven times, and then that brings about some type of spiritual power. Mm-hmm. So if we take it back to the Kaaba, they were very much aware of the circul- circularization of seven times. Um, so, so this goes back to like me. So there are practices that I have learned by studying the life of the prophets that I have adopted to my own life. So like if there's a building I go to and I don't like the energy there before I walk in the building, I will circle the building or circle around it in the area seven times. I don't do it where it becomes a spectacle, like, yeah, dudes out there acting weird, marching, Jericho marched around our building and stuff, laying hands on the doors and wiping oil everywhere. I don't make it obvious what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. I'm stirring up the energy, and then once I stir it up and mix the positive with the negative, then I have a balance. Then I can walk into this negative building because now I've created a positive pathway for me to walk through, keep my shield up. Of, of the, to block the walls of negativity around me, but I have enough of a pathway where I can walk through and not be touched by the left or the right of this negativity that I felt in this building before I came in it. Again, this is a personal practice. It's not something that I would teach and say this is what the Scripture says you should do. You should walk around your house seven times before you go in it. Sister J.I., why are you laughing? Excuse me. Excuse me, kind sir. Kind sir. Kind sir. Can you yes. show that to me in the Quran where it says that oh, I'm supposed to walk around the Kaaba seven times? I don't recall. I don't recall the scripture like that. I haven't read there, the whole. There, 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 there's, there, there's no Quran that specifies seven times, but we know from some of Abraham's writings that he would circle the Kaaba seven times. So all the other prophets took from the book of Abraham and found that he would circle the Kaaba about seven times, and then that's just but been God the tradition. God himself didn't say do that, right? That we have in the Quran. We have the book of Abraham where he details where Gabriel tells him how to circle the Kaaba. That's about as far as I can get you is the book of Abraham. Okay, the book but not anything where God said, Repeat that's this. what I'm saying. In, in the book of okay. Abraham, I got Gabriel. I got Gabriel tell okay, but nothing after that does it say Abraham said God said we are to do this seven times. All we know okay. is from the book of Abraham, Gabriel tells him he's supposed and, to and circle he, it seven and, times. And he did Muhammad. No, there's well, we know that Muhammad was circling it seven times, but there's no clear ayat that says Muhammad said circle it seven times. But we know from uh, other sources that he would circle it seven times whenever he would go circle it. Gotcha. Uh, Beth, was you trying to say something? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jahan. I don't know. I was oh, I know. I, I know. I wasn't paying no attention to you. I know you being selfish. Does the method you about to say something? Yes, but I will hold this question until after the recording. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, we can always edit if it's that bad. Okay. 
I mean, it might be just easier just to wait. Yeah. It's, it's up to you. It's up to you. It's up to you. I don't want to cause more editing. It's fine. Okay. Okay. So, so if you go back to the outline, let us go to the next slide. So, on the next slide, uh, which is two one forty four, in the translation, it says. Uh, we have seen you turning your face to heaven for guidance, O Muhammad. And now, verily, we shall make you turn in prayer towards a direction of prayer which is more dear to you. So turn your face to the inviolable place of worship. Now, in the transliteration, where I've got it highlighted in yellow, is the Arabic word for the inviolable place of worship. And that Arabic word, as you see highlighted, is um, al-haram. So, so the invaluable place of worship that Allah is saying turn to is al-haram. So if you go to the next slide, I've already put it up from Wikipedia, what Masjid al-haram is. So it says that Masjid al-haram the sacred mosque, also known as the Great Mosque of Mecca, is a mosque that surrounds the Kaaba in Mecca. And in Mecca, in the Mecca province of Saudi Arabia, it is the site of pilgrimage in the Hajj, which every Muslim must do at least once in their lives, if able. And you can read the rest of this in your own time. So the mention of face al-Haram is actually telling us to face the Kaaba there in Mecca. So this is why Allah says no matter where you are in the world, when you step off to say your prayer, face this direction. So again, as you can see, this is not just something that is traditional. Yes, traditions have been added to it, but if we take away all the traditions and just get back to the word, we do see that Allah tells the believers that this is the direction that we are supposed to pray. Go to the next slide. So the next slide says the first obligation in the Quran was about the direction of prayer. And remember in the Quran, Allah tells us that he never obligates anything in his law unless he replaces it with something better. Obligation, to remind you, in our basic term, means to repeal and replace. If you remember all about repeal, replace under the four years of Trump, you'll understand what I mean, repeal and replace. It means get rid of what was already there, tear it up to shred, and then we're going to create something new. So Allah says, I never get rid of the old law without replacing that old law with something new. So when he flipped the direction of prayer, again, it was never supposed to be in the first place, but he allowed it to happen because later on in history it would be used as a test. So this is why I say Allah is very intelligent. So sometimes in our lives he will let event A happen. Because if event A does not happen, event B won't happen. So even though we may not understand event A, and we may not have even the light, we may not have even liked event A, but event A had to happen to trigger event B. 
because once event B is triggered, that now pushes you to event C, and so on and so on and so on, until you are finally at the destinated point that the creator wanted you to be in in the first place. Some of us are hard-headed, so instead of just listening to outright guidance of no, don't go there, or yes, go here, some of us have to take things the hard route where a lot has to do it a different way. Meaning, uh, I'm going to use Sister Jaha for a minute. Sister Jaha, you know what? Sister Jaha, can I, can, I can I tell the personal story tell about, about how, how, it turned into the, how it turned into the family jump? That's the story I'm going to tell. Is that okay? Tell it all. You okay. So, so when, I, when, when me and G was younger, Sister Jay Hobbs was dating this guy named Apostle Paul, right? His name really wasn't Apostle Paul. His, his was just Paul. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> his name, his name. His I was already like, red flag number one. <laughs> no, his name was just Paul. And I remember one night we was in church. And one of the sisters in the church began to operate in the gift of tongues. And she was walking around the sanctuary with her eyes closed. And I'll never forget this night because I was thinking in my mind as a, I think at the time I was about 11, maybe 12 years old. And I was thinking in my mind, how in the world is she walking around with her eyes closed and she ain't bumping into nobody or nothing. And she would randomly walk up to people and grab them by the hand, speak in tongues for a minute. Then she would say it in English, what she was saying. And then, you know, she would let that person go and she would walk around more. And it was just baffling to me to see this woman walking around with her eyes tightly closed. It wasn't like she was peeking through them. So anyway, she walks over to Sister J-Hot and she grabs Sister J-Hot by the hand. Sister J-Hot's crying and snotting everywhere and uh, uh, Sister Kathy, I think was her name. Wasn't her name Kathy? Uh -huh. Sister Kathy say, she say, um, she had mom by the hands and she said, she said, she said, she said, Holy Ghost said, let him go. Lose him and let him go. Referring to Paul. And I believe she said it like three or four times. Lose him and let him go. Well, I don't know, you know, the, the uh, I, mom would have to tell that part of the story of, the, the, in her mind. That was what but, I wanted to hear. That's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew this much as, as a 12-year-old boy. I knew that the spirit of God had told my mom to let her boyfriend go. Lucy me let him go. Well, mom didn't listen. So the next thing I know, this man went from zero to ten over a matter of weeks, and then finally it turned into a situation, and I can't remember what the man jumped on me for, but he jumped. I think him and mom were fighting, and I called myself. Because you left a light on in the house. You left a light on. Yeah, 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 that's what it was. I left a light on in the house, and he wanted to pop off, and somehow he ends up trying to choke me out. Mom jumps on him, so then I, I observe him start fighting with my mom, so I jump on him. G went and got a brick. G hits him in the back with a brick, and till oh this my. day, we laugh about it. Yeah, until this day, we laugh about it. We call it the family <laughs> jump. We had a family jump. We jumped that, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, but the point I bring the story up for is, had Mongoose done what Spirit told him to do, loose him and let him go, it would not have went there. But in order for God to show her that she had to loose him and let him go, it took God turned the heat up a little bit. Or let me say it a different way. It took God to allow the heat to get turned up a little bit so that mom could snap in her mind and say, I got to lose this and let it go. And I think right right after that, mom was like, I'm good. We out. This is, this is done. So there are times, again, where God will give us a clear direction on what to do or what not to do. But like Jaha said, because it's not what I want, I try to do what God told me to do or not to do, but do it in a different way so I can still have my way in it and still feel like I'm obeying God. And that's normally when God sits back and is like, oh, you want to hit people with garbage cans. <laughs> now I got to cut you. And I'm being silly, not saying God's really cutting people, but you get my point. That that sometimes God will allow things to roll, not for our bad, but it's going to work out for our good. So, you know, sometimes you got to do, you know. It's like being that parent that, you know, ask your child to do something a couple times and they ain't listening to you, so now you got to act like the crazy parent to really get their attention mm-hmm. and to get them to realize what you what you do. And another story, me and G were younger, and we were hyper one night. Mom had told us to go to bed. So we went to bed. We were in the bed, but we were up having just a blast. And Mom yelled in the room again, go to bed. So we got quiet for a minute, and then we went back to playing and wrestling. Next thing I know, Sister Beth, Mom came running in the daggone room. Her hair was all wild, like she was possessed by a demon. She was foaming at the mouth. She had the uh, the uh, scrub brush in her hand, and she said, did not say, go to bed. And we both stopped and looked. <laughs> we both stopped and looked at her like, what in the world? And then we bust out laughing, you know. She tried to scare us, but it scared us for a quick second because she had foam all over her mouth. And, and then once we realized it was toothpaste running down, and she had foamed up in her mouth and just <laughs> flowing down her mouth, we bust out laughing. So our little scare, you know, it, it worked, but then it backfired. But but same, same scenario. Not saying that God... Phones at the mouth and goes crazy on us, but you get what I'm saying. Sometimes when we just want to be hard-headed, God says, okay, you want to do it your way, then we'll do it this way. But you're going to get knocked across the head. And I'm not going to be the one that hits you. When you fall down and bust the dome open to your white meat, I'll be waiting for you. When you come on back then, we'll, we'll, we'll work this out. But if you want to go left and I told you to go right, go ahead, figure it out. You You grown. You know more than I know? Go ahead, do what you do. And it never fails. What do we do? Oh, God, why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you warn me about this? And God, like I got this. Can you hear me now? Okay. <laughs> okay, so this this is the first obligated part of the Quran was about the direction of prayer. When Allah's messenger migrated to Medina, 
the majority of its people were Jews. And Allah commanded him to face Bayat al-Bakir, uh, or the Temple Mount, the, what we call the Temple Mount today. The Jews were delighted then. Allah's messenger faced it for ten and some months. And he liked to face the direction of Abraham, which is the Kaaba in Mecca. He used to supplicate to Allah and, to, and look up at the sky, waiting for Allah's command. Allah then revealed, Verily we have seen the turning of your face towards the heavens. Until your faces, or uh, until turn your faces in prayer in that direction. The Jews did not like this ruling and said, "What has turned them, Muslims, from their direction of prayer to which they used to face in prayer? Say, O Muhammad, to Allah belong of the east and the west." So when Muhammad first was dealing with the Jews, Allah guided him to pray the way the Jews prayed. And if you study this further, you actually find out that it was about, that's why it says some months, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, 10, 10 months and some months. But the actual amount of months is about 17 to 18 months. So we know at least a year and a half, almost two years, while he was fellowshipping with the Jews, he prayed the way they prayed. Because that's what a lot told him. Even though his heart's desire was to pray towards the way Abraham prayed, so that that was his mission to revive the religion of Abraham. So his heart wanted to do it the way Abraham did it, but that wasn't the status quo of his day. So a lot guided him just for a little while to do what they do, and then one day we're going to change this. So go to the next slide. Next slide says that Enon the Carter reported that uh, Ezek narrated, Allah's messenger offered his prayers facing Jerusalem for 16 or 17 months, but he wished that he could pray facing the Kaaba at Mecca. The first prayer which he offered facing the Kaaba was the author of the afternoon prayer in the company of some people. And one of those who had offered prayer with him went out and passed by some people in the mosque who were bowing in the bowing position during their prayers facing Jerusalem. He addressed them saying, by Allah, I bear witness that I have offered prayer with the prophet facing Mecca. Hearing that, those people immediately changed their direction towards the house, the Kaaba, while still as they were in the bowing position. Some Muslims who offered prayers towards previous direction of prayer, which was Jerusalem, before it was changed towards the house, the Kaaba, had died or had been martyred, and we did not know what to say about them regarding their prayers towards Jerusalem. Allah then revealed, Allah would never make your faith. Your prayers to be lost. The prayers of the Muslims are valid. So if you go back and read through that, that's why Allah made the statement about nobody's faith is lost. Because there were previous that believed this way, but were practicing it the way the Jews had it laid out. So the question was amongst the Muslims who, who just made this change, what, what about Grandpa? He, he used to pray towards Jerusalem. I wonder if God's going to forgive him. They started thinking like how we think today. You know, man... 
you know how even today when we when we talk about the difference from of Islam and Christianity and we say things like, man, if I would have known eight years ago and I wasted all this time, all my life I've been taught wrong. And we look at it in the negative light versus looking at it at the positive that our upbringing was the foundation that God wanted us to have. Had we not been brought up the way we were, and I believe right now all three of us were brought up, Pentecost minus Sister Jehai, who originally started off being brought up Baptist and then went Pentecostal. The rest of us were raised just strictly Pentecostal. I was born into Pentecost. Mm-hmm. I'm going to die in Pentecost. Oh, you started out Baptist too? Yeah, I was wee little bitty thing. I was in Baptist and then went Pentecostal. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was born in Pentecost. I don't know nothing but Pentecost. <laughs> All you did was mess a few Pentecostal. naps. What'd you say? All you missed was just a few naps. <laughs> just, just a few naps. Um, not a, not as exciting as Pentecostal church. Not at all. Okay. So let's go back to Sora 2. So thus far, without me having to go through this again, does it make sense to you, Sister Beth, as to why Allah told the prophet to change the direction of the prayer that he and the rest of his followers were praying towards for the span of a year and a half, almost two years. Does this part of the story make sense to you? Perfectly, yes. Okay. So, Jehad, does it make sense to you? Okay. Now, Sister Beth, Beth, if you had to share on just this part of the story, just how – it, it speaks to you or what you can glean from this, what would you say? That God has his original intentions and people sometimes change their obedience to it. But because he is graceful, he he may honor it, but he's still going to try to work with you to pull you back in the direction you're supposed to go. Okay, okay. So, Jacob, what would you say? What 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 speaks to you in this this scenario? How it shows how the mind can be so conditioned. So conditioned to believe one way, one way and one way only. And then God says, okay, you learn, you you have advanced to the head of the class. Let me show you something different. I'll never forget the, the feeling. I felt, I felt so like I was betraying Jesus. I really felt like I was betraying Jesus. Until I opened up the Quran to the scripture that talks about talks about Jesus, and even right. even though he showed me, even though he showed me uh, before before being introduced to Islam, even though he showed me before that 
you ain't the only one to speak in tongues. You ain't the only one that you don't not the only you are not the only religion that does these things. Let me show you here I'm about to show you the the where where I want you to be. Where 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 right. I you to. And when I opened that book and I and I saw Jesus being spoken of, because we, you know, we've been taught that that that's the devil. The Quran is the devil, and I felt so like I was betraying Jesus. I felt so bad. And when I opened the book and saw saw that scripture, I, I ain't looked back since. Amen. 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 Now, for me, if I had to apply this to where we are today, it shows kind of what you just said, Sister J-Hot, how we as a society will adapt traditions and then reject what God says and then feel justified in doing so because that's what my family does. And that's what they did. And if you remember when we were reading about Moses and Pharaoh, the question that they asked Moses was, are you really coming and challenging the religions that our fathers worshipped? And now you're telling us we, we've been wrong all these years? Get out of here with that, man. I ain't trying to hear that. My granddaddy was a Baptist. My great-granddaddy was a Baptist. And you going to come in here with this Islamic stuff? Right. Or, you know, I've had people tell me, like, man, I don't understand why you would do something like this. Something like what? Talking about you a Muslim now. I mean, your mama was raised in Pentecost. She raised you in Pentecostal. You saw the power of God. You've even spoken tongues before. How could you turn your back on God like this? And it's like, wait a minute. Who said anything about turning back on God? Who said anything about, I don't believe in God no more. I don't believe in Jesus. I, I never said these things because you said you was a Muslim. Never, okay, but I never said I don't believe in Jesus. And any and I always tell Christians, any Muslim that tells you that they don't believe in Jesus is not a true Muslim. End of discussion. Any Muslim who only tells you that Jesus was no more than just a prophet is a person who calls himself a Muslim but don't know the Quran. And, yes, there's a lot of Muslims who don't know the Quran. They just know they are Muslim. In the same way Christians are raised in Christianity but never read their Bibles but will be proud to say, I'm a Christian. But then when you ask them a question about the Bible, they don't know nothing about the Bible, but they are a Christian. Same thing with a Muslim. If you were raised in a Muslim home, but you never were taught to study your Quran or do your prayers, you're a Muslim, but you're, you're, you're not a Muslim. Okay? So so back in Surah 2, so we can wrap this up, and we'll look at uh, uh, pick it back up in, in 145. So in 145, Allah says, even if you brought unto those who have received the scripture all kinds of signs. I'm not going to say pertinence. I'm just going to break it down to what it means, signs. 
they would not follow your direction of prayer, nor can you be a follower of their direction of prayer, nor are some of them followers of the direction of prayer of others. And if you should follow their desires after knowledge has come unto you, then surely you will be of the evildoers. So notice something here. Allah says, if you were to even show them signs, miracles, and wonders, to prove to them that why you did what you did was an act of God, they still wouldn't follow your direction of prayer because they argue with others about their direction. So it's evident at this point that at this point in history, people had different directions at which they prayed. So the Jews and the Christians prayed one way, another group prayed another way, and everybody was doing what they wanted to do. But Allah says, even if it applies to us today, even if we were to show them every miracle we could to show them that Allah is the one true God, they still would find something to argue about because they don't want to believe. That side miracles, wonders is not the issue. It's a heart disease that's the issue, and it's called hypocrisy. When I know what the truth is, but because it does not fit into my tradition or it does not fit into how I was raised or it does not fit into just clearly what I want it to be, I just outright deny it. That makes one a disbeliever. Okay, next verse. says, those unto whom we gave the scripture recognize this revelation as they recognize their own sons. Below, a party of them knowingly concealed the truth. So Allah says, anyone who knows the scriptures, and you have to remember, we're talking about the scriptures that existed at this time before they doctored it up and altered it and gave us King James Version and all the other versions we have today. So at one point in history, there was some information about the Kaabas a little bit more evident than what we have today. And this is why Allah says, those who were previously given the scriptures, know this is the truth. They know that the revelation is true as they know their own children. But a party of them, not all of them, but a group of them have decided to conceal this truth. Now, the group that he's making reference to is Krishna, the Jews. But now, if you remember, I brought it up the other week. Amongst the group of Jews is a group of Christians that have aligned with these Jews. This has been going on even since the days of Muhammad leading up to where we are today. So when Allah talks about do not take Jews and Christians for friends, do not associate with Jews or Christians, he's not making reference to all of them. But he is making reference to this one type of Jew and this one type of Christian. Now, in our society today, these two groups, one is called Jewish Zionism, and the other group is called Christian Zionism. These are the two groups that Allah says we should have nothing to do with these people because they're allies and friends one to another. And Allah says they're treacherous, they're evil, they have agendas that, that seek to hurt people, they have agendas that seek to mislead people, they have an agenda to lie and hide the truth when they know very clearly it's the truth. These are the Jews and the Christians that Allah say have nothing to do with. So what's that mean for us today? Not every Christian is a Zionist Christian. 
Sister Jayhawk, were you a Zionist Christian when you were a Christian, or were you just a Christian? You probably didn't even know about Zionist Christianity when you was a Christian, right? <laughs> didn't even know about a Zionist. Mm-hmm. Sister Beth, were you a Christian? Were you a Zionist Christian? Absolutely not. My family was. And yes, I was the black sheep rebel of the family, and everybody's like, oh, they are the chosen children. No, they're not. No, they're not. Okay, so coming coming from a family with a Zionist Christian background, how would you describe to the class what Christian Zionism is from your viewpoint and your experience? Prejudice. Prejudice. <laughs> wow, wow. You just go straight for the jugular, huh? <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, they, they really believe that the Jews are the chosen people of God, and we must support them in, 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 in everything that they do. And if we bless them, God will bless us. And we have to support them and encourage them in everything, even no matter how just asinine it may be. And the, those darn Palestinians, they need to get out of there. That's not their land. And it's just... It's just brainwashing, complete and utter brainwashing. Yeah. But then yeah. I've always asked them, well, I thought God made us all equal and he's no respecter of persons. What about that? Oh, he is. But that's why we have to believe in Jesus so that we can be grafted in. Oh, my. <laughs> 147 says, it is the truth from thy Lord. O Muhammad, so be not thou of those who waver. Now, keep in mind, on the Temple Mount, for the Muslim, the Temple Mount was never important because of a place called Solomon's Temple, which hopefully by now you realize never existed. What Solomon built, or should I say what he added on to, was the mosque that sits up there behind the Dome of the Rock. Showed you all pictures of it. Won't worry about it today. So no temple, the only temple that's ever been up there, if we can deem it a temple, would be Herod's Palace or Herod's Temple. Solomon had no type of temple that was dedicated to sacrifices and stuff like that. That all deals with the jinn and all that. We'll come back to that because we're not quite done with that fully just yet, so we'll come back to it. So, but what I do want to show you is that the Temple Mount is a special place um, for several reasons. Go to the next slide. Sister Beth, can you read just that first paragraph for us, please? Um, Oh, okay. Ley lines are a network of magical corridors which distribute magical energy from the nexus of magic throughout the earth. Some people have tried to trace the ley lines back to the nexus but failed. Around the world, okay. there are places. Uh huh. You go on. You go ahead. Oh. 
Around the world, there are places where many ley lines can, <clears throat> excuse me, converge. These are the so-called secondary nexuses. In some cases, there are buildings built on top of them. The secondary nexuses are, by many cultures, considered special places. Example okay, of so secondary you, nexuses. You could, uh -huh. you, you could stop there. You could stop there. So when we start dealing with these ley lines, what you understand is is that if you look at your arm, if you look at your arm palm up, and start at your wrist and come up some, you see if you got good veins, you see all these veins spreading through your arm. And those veins carry the blood and the electrical current throughout the body, right? So our veins could be considered ley lines. And these ley lines connect to the motherboard, which is the computer system of our bodies. And through these ley lines, it distributes energy to the prop, to the, the rightful areas that we need. So in Earth, Earth has these veins that flows this energy to different areas, different nations, different spots. So what happens is, uh, okay, let me say it medically first. So I'm going to ask a medical question, Sister Jayhad, that I just kind of experienced this myself, but if two nerves cross each other to the point that they're touching, can that cause problems with the body? Oh, yeah. It can cause extreme pain or dysfunction of of uh, dysfunction of the anatomy. And if I be right, it would be because of the two currents running against each other that will cause Amen. some type of wild behavior in the body, right? Amen. You you will actually feel the electrical shock. Yeah, I drunk, that's why I said I just experienced this myself a few weeks ago when I took my fingers and touched that area where it was hurting. And I told you I hit something and then it felt like electricity or a shock went through my body and it made me black out for a second. And it was like, oh, what was that? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I just got shocked just standing here. <laughs> So if you could think about Earth ley lines, if one powerful ley line crosses over another ley line and they intersect at a particular spot, then above the ground level where these two ley lines are crossing is going to be an area of, of a deep paranormal activity. You're going to have all kinds of weird stuff going on. If a, if a house is built over an intersection, the house will deal with a lot of paranormal activity. That's what we figured out was going on with Sister Jay Hotels. Her house sits on an intersection of ley lines that intersect each other at this particular spot. And, and yeah, you go to Sister if you really want some ghost hunters, this is Jayha's house. They'll give you all the entertainment you want. Oh, yeah. they, they'll, they'll throw bows at you. They walk up and down the steps. They slam doors. Yeah, you won't go hunting, go, go over to Jayha's house. <laughs> I'll bring cookies. I want to come. What'd you, what'd you say? You bring, you'll bring cookies. <laughs> yeah, I'll bring your cookies. Just let me come see it. 
Oh, man. Um, uh, we lived at another house. Which Where was we at? Where were we living at, Bob, when you said you saw Tiger uh, lift up in the air? Well, we all, oh, were we yeah. in, uh, we were on Nina, we were on Nina then. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't, I can't think of, we wasn't on no ley line there. We wasn't on no ley line there. I can't remember what the spiritual activity was at that point, but mom remembers going in the, where was it, I think the kitchen, and found the cat suspended in the air. <laughs> That thing was talking my I, cat out. I'm not laughing at the cat, y'all. I'm not laughing. I'm just laughing at my life, Because who, who do you know that could just have these type of stories? Like, yeah, my mom went in the kitchen one day, and the cat was just suspended in midair, getting choked by something <laughs> invisible. <laughs> who, who, where can you hear these stories at? Don't ain't no different. My cat getting kicked across the room. Right. What'd you say, Jason? <laughs> Would you want, uh, G? I mean, we're Yeah, Snake watched TV with me. That we was Nina Snake came in. Yeah, that was on Nina. I, hey, trust me, you ain't got to remind me of that one. So I'm sitting there watching TV on the floor, and I just had that eerie feeling like I'm not alone. So I happened to look down, the snake that crawled up next to me, and he, his face was looking at the TV, too. And I'm like, um, wow, am I dreaming right now? Or is there really a snake sitting in the living room with me watching TV? Woo! Man, you just made me get the, 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 the willies on that one, Malcolm. I remember that. That was a little bit too close for comfort right there. That was just a little bit too close for comfort. Just look down at just a snake sitting next to you like, hey, how you doing? You mind turning the channel? Are you watching this? Okay, y'all, give me the priest now because my power just flickered. What happened? what happened? I said, y'all, give me the crease now because my power just flickered. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're just talking about that. That's the first thing that happens. I'm like, whoa, okay, no. No. Go to go to the next slide. Next slide. So on the next slide, you see Jerusalem and Mecca. And you see the line, the red line that connects the two. So we know that the Temple Mount, and I think if you go back to the article that we just read about ley lines, the Temple Mount is named as one of those vortex areas along with the Kabbalah. And the reason why is because the Kaaba and and the Temple Mount somehow sit on the same ley line. And they are intersected by other ley lines at their points. So the Temple Mount is a hot spot and the Kaaba is a hot spot. And when I say hot spot, I mean a vortex of energy. So between the vortex at Mecca and between the vortex at the Temple Mount, and these two places have been called for thousands of years the houses of God. So we know from Scripture that there's two houses, one in Jerusalem, one in Mecca. But what nobody ever really thinks about from the scientific point of view is how in the world. You can't, you can't, you can't make this up. This is not coincidence that two major religious shrines, if we want to call them that, sit on the same major ley line 
So there's this powerful energy force flowing between the two of them. And again, when it comes to prayer, we're all surrounded by these ley lines. So when I put my head to the ground, the the power that's coming, that's being generated out of that spot that we call the Kaaba is flowing through earth's veins and able to enter into my body when I make a point of contact with it. But we'll get deeper into the energy part of that later. But you, you see what I'm saying here. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now I want you to go over to Sora 2. Sora 2. And then we get one more scripture and we're done. Sword, go back to Sword 2. Any questions, comments on the ley line part of this? I was going to say, I, I watch so much documentaries, y'all. I can't remember if I learned this in a documentary or if I learned this in class. I feel like I remember it in class. I don't know. But when you pair the whole ley line thing you're talking about with where everything crosses and the fact that Mecca is actually the golden ratio, the very center of the earth, that's that's pretty powerful. That's a lot. There's a lot going yeah. on. There's like a lot going on there. Yep, the golden ratio of the earth is Mecca. Is that what you just said? Yeah. And you're right, yes. All right, so Sora 2, verse 47. Verse 47 of Sora 2 says, O children of Israel, remember my favor wherewith I favored you and how I preferred you to all creatures. And guard yourself against a day when no soul shall avail another, nor will intercession, intercession, intercession be accepted from it, nor will co- uh, uh, compensation. I was about to say compensation, but that ain't what it says. Com- compensation be received from it, nor will they be helped. And remember, when we did deliver you from Pharaoh's people, who were afflicting you with dreadful torment, slaying your sons and sparing your women. That was a tremendous test and trial from your Lord. And when we brought you through the sea and rescued you and drowned the people of Pharaoh in your sight. And when we did appoint for Moses 40 nights of solitude, And you chose to cast when he had gone from you, and you were the wrongdoer. So we know with just those few ayat that we're talking about the same story you know about in the Bible. When Moses went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh got ticked off about some things, and then ends up chasing them towards the Red Sea. So now I want you to go over to Sword 10. Go back to Sword 10, and we will wrap up with this. We're going to go to verse 90. Verse 90. So, sword 10, verse 90, Allah says, And we brought the children of Israel across the sea. And Pharaoh, with his hosts, pursued them in rebellion and transgression, 
to when the fate of drowning overtook him, he explained, I believe that there is no Allah save him in whom the children of Israel believe. And I am those who surrender unto him. So Allah says here that Pharaoh was a transgressor. He was rebellious. And he hunted the children of Israel down to the Red Sea, and he was a tyrant all up until the moment he saw that the water was getting ready to crash down on him. And he began to yell out, I believe in Allah. I believe in the God of the children of Israel. Believe today I submit to you. So if we get what's going on here, what you say, today? are you going to learn today? You're going to learn today. <laughs> and now, not making fun of his soul, but it's funny to me that it took him to face death to then be like, oh, you know what? The very God that I've been denying today, I say you are God. I submit. Save me, Lord. Save me right now. Oh, Lord, save me. And it's the same way it is today. People will deny God over and over and over again, but then as soon as they get themselves into a hard spot or a hard way, who do we go to? Oh, God, save me. God, help me. Help me, God. So he goes on and he says in verse 91, What now, when hitherto thou hast rebelled and been of the wrongdoers, but this day we will save you in your body, that you may be a sign for those after you. Lo, most of mankind are heedless of our sign. So Allah says that he told Pharaoh, oh, you want to believe today? Like Sister Jay, I was just saying, you're going to learn today. You're going to talk to all this big talk. You're big, put your big boy pants on now because you're going you're gonna to learn today. And Allah says, this is how this is going to go. You're going to die. But I'm going to do a miracle, and I'm going to personally preserve your body for later generations to find you, and this will be a sign. Now, Allah goes even further. We won't look at it today. We'll look at it next class, where he goes even further and tells us that one of the signs of the fact that we have come to the point that Jesus is about to return is the finding of Pharaoh's body. So, if you go to the next slide. The body of Pharaoh was discovered in 1898, Ramses II. His body is approximately 3,000 years old, found by the Red Sea, and is now on display in the Royal Mummies Museum in Cairo. So if we read the, the two verses we just read, 1092, today we preserve your body so you can be a sign for people who come after you. And then if you read the next one. So here you have clear fulfillment of Allah's word that he said this was going to happen, and we saw it happen. Pharaoh's body was found which started the countdown to some events that begin to take place after this year. But again, for the second time, we won't get into that part just yet. What I do want to bring up as we close today is this. In the Quran, even outside of the story of Moses and Pharaoh, 
God constantly seems to bring Pharaoh up, rather as an example of something, or just telling us how much of a tyrant he was and his people. So there is a reason that Allah continuously keeps bringing up Pharaoh. Now, to be honest with you, out of all the bully tyrants that you could think about in Scripture, Pharaoh is the worst. He was very wicked, very evil type person. Um, when you get to the Bible, this is the confusing part of the story in the Bible. So we know from the Bible that Joseph was the governor of Egypt. Yes, yes. We know that Joseph, Jacob's son, that we studied about on Friday night, was pretty close to Pharaoh. Jacob dies. Joseph takes Jacob back to Jerusalem, buries him, then comes back to Egypt and continues his duties as governor of Egypt. The very next chapter or two, you get to Exodus chapter 1. And by the time you get to Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew people and the Egyptian people seem to be living side by side. There seems to be this new pharaoh in power, and he becomes terrified of the Hebrew people because of a prophecy. But here's the confusion. He orders the death of all the male children, and so on and so on and so on. So then you get to the part of Moses going to Pharaoh. And here's where we have to rethink our Sunday school story. So when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he begins to tell Pharaoh, and I'm, I'm quoting Bible now, about God said, let my people go, Pharaoh's question seems to be, who is this God that you're talking about? I don't, I don't know what God you're talking about. And then they even ask in the Bible, who is this man? Who are these people? So it's very evident from the Bible that the Pharaoh does not seem to know the children of Israel. He does not seem to know who Moses is. He does not even seem to know who the God of these people are. But if you go to the previous Pharaoh, it would appear that he was very close to the children of Israel, even down to worshiping the same God they worship. So either A, this could not be Pharaoh's son as we think. You know, most people say that this was Pharaoh's son. Well, if it was Pharaoh's son, then this Pharaoh would have known who Moses was, yes? Because they would have grown up together. They would have grown up together. This right. new Pharaoh would have known clearly who Joseph was, because if Joseph was the governor, Joseph was always in the presence of the Pharaoh. So if the Pharaoh had a younger son, I'm pretty sure at some of the meetings, Brother Joseph and the Pharaoh's son would have saw each other, if not even talked or even been close with each other. So again, the Bible depicts this Pharaoh as not knowing anything about the God of the Hebrews. He doesn't even know where these Hebrew people came from. He doesn't know Joseph, and he clearly says this that he doesn't. This Joseph, I don't, I don't know who he is. So how how is this the Pharaoh previous? How is this the previous Pharaoh's son? But he doesn't know who Joseph is. He doesn't know how these people got to Egypt. So make that make sense. How does this pharaoh sit on the throne but doesn't know how these people got here, and he knows none of the history of the relationship of his father with the man named Joseph who brought the Hebrew people to Egypt at the pharaoh's command? So how come this pharaoh doesn't seem to know that history? 
So, so this Pharaoh, again, and I said I would come back to him, had children. And then those children had children. And so on and so on and so on and so on. Go down to the next slide. So as time goes on, I go back to what I said earlier. Pharaoh sets up a mystery school. And he sets up a pyramid scheme that still exists to this day. And at the very top of this pyramid scheme, they use magic to keep the masses blinded while they do their handiwork. Um, now, if you remember, when we did a study on Pharaoh, we defined the word Pharaoh to mean doorway. So we know that the word Pharaoh meant that he was the doorway between the other world and our world. He was the medium or the mediator between the two worlds, or the high priest of the of 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 the mystery schools. So at the top of the pyramid, you see Pharaoh. Below the Pharaoh, you see the visors, the priests, and the noble blood. Now, if we looked at this pyramid today, we would call that second group the Illuminati, the nobles. The elite bloodlines, the priesthood, the ones who who orchestrate the magic and then the advisors, the, the advisors to whoever it is sitting behind the scenes pulling the strings. Now, our pharaoh today would be that of what the Quran and the prophet would tell us about of the jaw, the imposter system. So below the priests and the nobles and the visors, you had the military. Below the military, you had the scribes. Below the scribes, you had the business owners. Below the business owners, you had, you know, those who were craftsmen or, you know, the workers. Then below the workers, you had peasants. And then below the peasants, you had slaves. Now, if we look at this today, the slaves would be just, what we would call poor people today. They have no choice but to do whatever the system tells them to do. Peasants would be today the, the common everyday people who are just trying to get by. But if you see this pyramid scheme, it still exists today. Top of the pyramid would be those of the rich and the glorious ones. And then at the bottom of the pyramid are just the common everyday people just trying to make ends meet. And while at the top of the pyramid they do magic and they do horrible things to their own nation and to their own people in order to keep control. So go to the last slide there. You see on the back of our dollar bill the words the Nuet Sweptus Noblis Ordo Seclum. In English, he has accepted our new world order. And notice, as I always bring out, the Egyptian pyramid. And out of all the symbols that these people could have chose for their symbol on their money, they chose an Egyptian pyramid. But why? Are they Egyptians? Mm-mm. Which, was that you or Sister Jay Hodge said, mm-mm? No, it was me. Mm-hmm. 
So, if you remember the other day, we looked at Ham. Ham had a son named Cush. Cush's name meant black. Cush had a son named Mesmerine. Mesmerine became the father of Egypt, which means hot, black. Mesmerine called Egypt commit. Commit, if you look it up, means land of the black people or land of the black nobles. When the Europeans came in and invaded the territory and took it, they changed the name to Egypt. Then all of a sudden, we started having these white pharaohs. We went from dark-skinned pharaohs to white pharaohs. And Sister Jehan, I know you were in that class. I just don't know if you remember when we went through that when I showed that one point in history, Pharaoh was black, and then randomly, like, we blinked, and overnight, the Pharaoh was white. Exactly. Exactly. The point where they teach, they teach. Uh, the Pharaohs were Egyptian people were white. <laughs> But here's the problem with such thinking. We've seen the pictures of the Egyptians from the pyramids. They're black. So where did these white Egyptians come from? Who is this white pharaoh that, okay, so the point I'm bringing out the white pharaoh for is because I again say, if you look around, the same pharaonic system. Go ahead, Jay. What would you say? I will say this. One of the most handsomest, I'm not saying, one of the most handsome men I ever met in my life was an Egyptian. He was not white. He was not, you couldn't call him white. You couldn't call him black. His skin was so beautiful. You couldn't even call him mixed, but he was dark skinned, not dark like you and me I got you he, he was he, he was brown brown skin and if he was so beautiful and he was a resident mm. if I'd have just been a couple of years younger anybody trying to hear all that since say hi everybody trying to hear all that <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening beautiful oh my god we are beautiful people Yes. Now, but what's what's funny about that is, okay, so you described that Egyptian, but when you watch the media, you never see that that darker color Egyptian anymore. You always see the bright white ones. Oh, no, yeah. Mm -hmm. They they hide the dark Egyptians out out the screen. They don't want nobody to know that, that the Egyptians are dark people because they have to hang on to this lie about Egyptians being white. But Egypt didn't turn white until they colonized it, and then they put a white pharaoh over them. So the reason I'm bringing up white pharaoh, again, not to be racist, but to point out something, it is very evident when we look around that the same pharaonic system that was set up during the time of Moses is the same pharaonic system that is being employed today. The same magic of Egypt that was used to brainwash and keep people distracted then is the same. Now, let me explain what I mean of magic, of, of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh and his priesthood in their secret societies, they had a thing where they could conjure the jinn. 
make alliances with jinn, and jinn would give them technology and information in return for sacrifices and and whatever else you know they wanted. So the 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 Egyptian priesthood and the jinn had made an alliance, and through this alliance, they kept the people under control. If they wanted fear, the pharaoh was was ordered by the jinn to create disastrous situations. So pharaoh would then orchestrate disastrous situations and then say, you know, natural disasters or whatever took place, and it would send shock and fear throughout the entire empire. And then he would gain more power over them. Is that still the same tactics that they use today? They create issues that make it seem like we're having a problem, but they're the ones who created the problem. Then they offer us a solution to the problem that they created to make us feel like they're our heroes and we can trust them, and then they gain more dominancy and power. And if you paid attention over the last few years, they are gaining more and more dominancy and power because they're gearing up for this great fight that they plan to have with Allah. And it's still that baffling part to me, Sister how who would think to fight Allah and exactly. actually think in your mind that you're going to win? Exactly. The creator of you and me and this whole world, <coughs> what in your mind tells you, I don't care how much uh, uh, Satan will whisper in your ear that you can beat him, what would make you think? Right, what, right. What would make you think? Even if, even if Satan is even saying that, you know what I'm saying? I can't imagine Satan saying that. Right. Now, now to, to show more proof that this Ferran or Pharaoh magic is still being used. Yesterday, I got a call, and. Young brother was running some information to me that, that that came to him, and he wanted my opinion on it. And he was running it down to me, and it means this. And now y'all know how I am. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's your source? You telling me what this is and what that is. Where are you getting this information from? And he said, oh, it's just been things on the news and things I've been hearing and seeing. And, and what he was telling me was he asked me, what did I think about Travis Scott? And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't even know who Travis Scott is. Who is that? And he said, you know Travis Scott, uh, Caitlyn Jenner's boyfriend or whatever. One of the Kardashian girls' boyfriend or baby's daddy or something. What would you say, Mom? I said, say what? When you said Travis Scott, we must not be talking about the same Travis. Not the, not the I, uh, comedy news reporter. No, this is a rapper. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Seth, am I saying his name right? Am I saying his name right, Seth, or you don't know who I'm talking about either? No, I know who you're talking about. That was a whole ritualistic killing that just happened at his concert. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because now you sound like how the guy sounded last night. I was like, man, he's an apostle. He is ritualistically killing people Mm -hmm. out in the public. Right in front. Mm-hmm. I said, whoa, whoa, I said, that's I said, I said. That's popping uh, up when you, when you put, first pull up your, uh, when you first pull up uh, any, uh, any media like Google or Yahoo, that's the first thing that pops up on the, uh, pops up on the screen. But I didn't, I didn't read through the article. 
I got you. So, yeah, well, I watched the video. On. I watched the whole video, and the whole time they they had people running on stage trying to tell them to stop. People are dying, and this man goes into chanting. That is why I yeah. say I believe it. So, so yeah, my brother Anthony was going on a tangent about this man is ritualistically killing people. He's doing outright devil worship on stage. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, Anthony, I said, you realize to accuse someone of witchcraft or magic on that level, that is a high accusation. I said, so what is your proof? What is your source? And he said, so you don't know about the concert and what happened? I, I don't watch news like that. I don't watch TV all like that. If I do, it's documentaries or things. I, I try to shy away from social TV because it's, it's all magic and negativity. So he said, just, just, I said, I tell you what, I said, let me hang up, look into this, I'll call you back with my viewpoint. So, like you, Sister Jay Hodge, I went and got my phone, and when I pulled up Google, this is the first thing that pops up about some concert where all eight people dead and many others injured, and I'm like, ah, oh, what a concert that went out of control. So I'm reading the article, and the article was talking about all these people dead, but it wasn't giving me the information that I wanted. How are we incriminating this man of doing magic? So I got the bright idea. I said, you know what? Let me just pull up the concert myself and just watch it. So in the news article, it said that, uh, 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 you know, eight people died, blah, blah, and it really didn't go into detail about the injuries and what happened and all that. So upon watching the concert, red flag one for me was he's on the stage. Behind him, they've got mountains with a red background that looks like fire, but the main mountain wasn't the mountain. It was a pyramid. Now, it fit, It fits in with the mountain, so unless you were a person like me, you wouldn't have never realized that that, that middle one is not a mountain. That's a pyramid. You get what I'm saying? They hid it in plain sight. They put it in between a bunch of mountains, so it looks like a big, tall mountain, but it was a pyramid. So I'm like, okay, that's red flag one. They got a pyramid on the stage. Then in the middle of the pyramid, they had like another picture, and it looked like a portal. I, that's what I would call it. I would call it a portal because it had uh, – I can't even describe it. It was just a, a, a open hole, like a circle, and mm -hmm. it, that was a portal. It was a daggone portal. So as he's on the stage singing, you start seeing the everybody running around and all that. So long story, Sister J-Hawk, because Beth just basically testified that she watched it. Um, mm -hmm. People started having seizures and heart attacks. And mm -hmm. so as I'm watching, I'm like, well, how are people just randomly having heart attacks? That doesn't make no logical sense. So people were having heart attacks. So eight people died from having a heart, just a random heart attack. Others had seizures. Um, um, I can tell you on that part. What? Go ahead. I can tell you on that part. Um, they, I just saw a, uh, what do you call it, like a briefing, a news briefing or something, where the police chief was talking about the investigation. And they said that one of the security guards, uh, who was also one of the victims, 
when they got him in, they had they got him in the ambulance, and he said that he felt like somebody had stuck him in his neck. And they go look, and they check his system and everything, and they find out that somebody had just randomly walked up and stuck him in the neck with a Narcan shot. Okay. Yeah. So we can, okay. Um, they the video that I also watched. They interviewed some of the bystanders or witnesses that were at the concert. And mm-hmm. here's some of the things I heard. Some of the 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 concert goers say. One young man said, "Out of all the concerts I ever been to, that's been the scariest and the most weirdest." And the interviewer said, "What do you mean weird?" He said, "I can't explain it." He said, "It was." Just at a, he said that you know, Travis was up there singing and he said some words. He said we still don't know what he said, but he said after that he said it was like this overwhelming feeling came over the whole crowd and he said it was like a tight feeling, and he said it was like you couldn't breathe. It was like he he went through a couple things. He said if I had to explain it, he was like I spent five minutes in hell. He said that's how it felt. He said, whatever came into that, this room tonight, he was like, he said, he called it hell. But he mm-hmm. describes the presence coming over the entire crowd that was just very dark, very oppressive. And he said to the point where it's like he was gasping for air and couldn't breathe and felt like he was about to pass out or go into a seizure or something. And so it was about three or four people that I listened to that gave this story. So then I went and looked at some other of his concerts, and I'm noticing that during his concerts, he's he's like Sister Beth said, he's he's saying these chants or whatever he's mm-hmm. saying in his his languages, and then soon after he says it or does it, you start seeing the crowd going to seizures and passing out and rambling off in other languages, like watching demon possession on a mass scale. I'll say it that way. It was like watching a mass crowd of people just randomly become demon-possessed. So I called Brother Anthony back, and I said, yeah, we can now officially accuse the man of magic, okay? <laughs> and when I told the young man, I said, this is what I've been trying to educate you about, that don't they use think, magic in music. Go ahead, just Jay Hart. Don't you think that a person that is not familiar with what we used to call uh, the Holy Spirit moving where where the speaker is speaking and then all of a sudden people start falling out. And I just had a picture of uh, Sister Tina falling out by herself with nobody to catch her. <laughs> people start falling out and uh, to, to them it would look like they're convulsing convulsing because they they in the spirit we call it in the spirit uh, right speaking speaking in other tongues other tongues it, it, it you know just because it's at a uh at a concert is it's being demonic i'm not defending them i'm just saying i got you comparison. i got you i got you now I hear what you're saying, but the reason I'm going to say this was just outright black magic is because uh-huh. if you go and watch these concerts, and at the moment, and, you know, because me and my studies of deliverance and this type of stuff, 
the moment that he releases whatever it is he's conjuring up and releasing, you can see the victim's faces in shock as they're going through what they're going through. You can tell that even the victims are scared to death and shocked what's going on with them. So it's it's okay. against their will. I'll say it that way. I can tell in their face it's against their will. It's not like, it's Travis Scott, oh, my God. You know how like, when Michael would come out and people would pass out if Michael came down and danced in front of you and then, you know, blew at you or something, they just fall out on the floor. It wasn't that. This was more demonic. This was more... Um, it, it would be like how you just described it, like what we see in church, but it was more these people were taken over. And you could see it clearly in their faces because they're just as confused as everybody else looking around is confused as to what is going on with me right now. So that's why I concluded after watching, I watched about three or four clips and videos and concerts and just the crowd, and I concluded, yeah, Travis Scott is involved with some – with some black magic. And you have to keep in mind he's he's in the Kardashian family who's also involved with some magic. So I'm bringing this out to say this. When it comes to the offspring of this pharaoh, they still exist today. They're still in power today. They're still employing their dark magical practices, and they're now teaching these celebrities how to practice this magic. And ultimately, there's a struggle going on in the industry right now. And then I'm going to ask you like I asked Brother Anthony. Think about something. Why are so many actors and actresses and uh, industry people leaving the industry and embracing Islam? What's going on behind closed doors in that music industry that's causing these people to embrace Islam? Because they the attack, see, they didn't see the other side. They didn't see yeah. it with their own eyes. And now they believe so there even, is a God. <laughs> yeah. So even with the music industry, this is an outright attack on Islam. How's that? Because the music is put in our subconscious, do what you want to do. Do as thou wilt. You want to be sexy, be sexy. You want to be half naked, be half naked. And we're being brainwashed to do the total opposite of what our creator asks us to do as a society. Now, not saying that every artist that's an artist knows clearly what they're doing. A lot of artists don't even make their own songs. They get paid to sing somebody else's song. So it would kind of be like a Donald Trump day. If you didn't reread the song before you got up to go record it, you really don't know what you're saying. You're just reading what they told you. To, you're just singing what they gave you to sing. So this this magical system is still being employed today, and it's coming from these Edomite Khazars, uh, uh, I was about to say Kardashian, not Kardashian, but these Khazar, Ashkenazi, elite people who are the people of Pharaoh. So we'll come back to it on Wednesday night. All right, questions, comments? Now, I do have a question. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'll come back to that. Let me, let me hit stop record real quick, and then Beth, you could ask a question as long as you didn't forget.
No, I didn't forget. 